0: Hello, how's it going? Welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, we're chatting to Nigel Farndale. He's a journalist, an award-winning interviewer, And his new book is The Dictator's Muse. It's set in 1930s Europe. It's all about a filmmaker, an athlete and a Welsh communist and how their lives entwine as Hitler's grip tightens. We talk about the difference between writing novels and articles, how he goes about writing real life people in fictional stories as well. And we discuss how sometimes the thing that he's writing just... Manages to sort itself out if you give it time. I
1: had to go somewhere in a car. If there's a car journey, it might have been a school run, and that meant having um, not being able to take your hands off a, a steering wheel and make sort of notes. It it forced you to sort of think through the 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 structure uh, of the whole uh, column idea in your head. So when you got to the end of the journey and got hold of a laptop. Uh, It it was almost like downloading it fully formed.
0: There's more on the way with Nigel Farndale in this week's Writer's Routine. Mm -hmm. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we have a look inside the day of some of the best authors around. Uh, This week, it's Nigel Farndale. He's an award-winning journalist. He won a British Press Award for his interviews. Uh, He's interviewed uh, Paul McCartney, uh, Prince Charles, Hillary Clinton, the Dalai Lama, Henry Kissinger, Donald Trump. uh, What a time that must have been. uh, And many others. Uh, And I think it's important to flag that because speaking to a lot of people gives gives you a sense of what other people's lives are like. It's the classic, you know, walking a mile in other people's shoes, isn't it? And I wonder how much that helps him get to grips... On the characters that he writes for his stories. He's written novels and biographies, articles for The Observer, The Sunday Times, The FT, many more. His last book, uh, The Blasphemer, was shortlisted for the Costa Book Awards back in 2010. Uh, His new book is The Dictator's Muse. It's set in 1930s Europe as Hitler's grip tightens and preparations are being made for the Berlin Olympics. It's all about a filmmaker, an athlete, uh, a Welsh communist, and how their lives entangle as the Nazis try to take over. Uh, We chat about the paraphernalia of his writing room and how that changes between stories. Also why he believes that amateurs wait for inspiration and professionals get on with it. Also why he doesn't think that he's been good at finding the balance between novels and journalism. And there's some unreliable narrator chat in there as well, which is always good fun. Now, while you're listening, if if you learn anything along the way that helps the way that you tell your stories, if there's a little bit of advice that you think, ah... I'm gonna I'm gonna do that myself. I'm gonna try and carry that over. Uh do us a favor, just leave us a little review on Apple. It really goes a long way, and make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts too. And it's time to crack on. We start as we always do with what Nigel Farndale sees around him in the place where he sits down to write.
1: Well, today I'm looking out at some at some rather splendid uh, rhododendrons that have just come out. So I, I do have a a view as such, which is uh can be a mixed blessing. We, um, there's some, some writers, I know, Julian Barnes, I once interviewed him and, and was rather struck by his uh, routine in that he would have to be uh, facing a blank wall, couldn't even have a picture on it. But that seems a little perverse to me. I used to live in London and, and my view was of rooftops in Clapham. And I, I thought that a little perverse, especially as I was a, a journalist mostly working from home as well as as writing books so i thought well, let's move to the country so the country is where i am uh, in hampshire on the hampshire sussex border and um i do look out across a garden which as i say has rhododendrons out in bloom at the moment um and uh, and the sun is shining and it's it's all nice and distracting
0: Take us inside the room. What would I see around me if I were to walk in? What is there that's inspiring? Perhaps something a bit practical? Just run us through that.
1: Well, there's lots of books. It's one of those. Um, uh, it's, it's a proper study, I suppose, uh, with, with shelves and shelves of books. Uh, a few stat CDs, which are now antiquated. They, they're gathering dust, haven't been used any for any time, for any long time um, there's a rather nerdily there's a couple of models of um, there's a, a Spitfire and um, a Lancaster bomber which rather they're sort of beautiful wooden uh, constructions which I painted black so they look like silhouettes and they sit on my uh, chimney piece in, in the study, uh, there's a log fire, log burner um, uh, there's a telescope which is covered in dust, doesn't get used but uh, it, it, I had aspirations to use it at, at some point. And a few photographs of, of family. Uh, well,
0: that's the, that's about the strength of it. Uh, in, in the middle of writing a, a novel, if I were to walk in, would I have any clues to the story that you're telling? Does the paraphernalia around you change from, from book to book? That's,
1: yeah, that's funny, that. There's uh, there's one I wrote, and, and I still have a bit of the paraphernalia for it, which, which um called the Blasphema, which... Which fe- featured a um, a Galapagos turtle, and I had a a little model of one, which I picked up. Some I don't even remember where, um, but it sort of s- sat on on the desk like a, a a talisman, and and I kept sort of looking at it and patting it, and it sort of stayed around here. And and yes, so there are odd things actually. Um, I'm just looking around again. Um, actually, for the for the latest one, I do have. Um, a little uh, poster for a, a film uh, uh, that was directed by and, and starred Lenny Riefenstahl, who is the subject of, um, or partly the subject of my new novel. And I, I saw it on uh, eBay, uh, and it's it was from uh, produced in 1933, and it's um, it's from a, a, a cinema in London, and it's just a, a, an advert, really. Um, but I just thought uh, that's that's quite a sort of little curiosity, and I, I bought it for about thirty quid. And it's sort of that slightly features in the, in the novel, or at least uh, uh, there is a sort of one of the characters ha- has this sort of poster, and it just sort of it g- gave me a sort of feeling of connection with with uh, the story and the atmosphere a bit. So I, I do like to look at that occasionally.
0: You mentioned your desk. Um... Uh, what is there? What forms of like the practicalities of writing are there? I'm talking notebooks, uh, you know, a big screen, a little laptop. Just let me get into that space. Uh,
1: so I've got a, a two two big screens on my on my desk. It's a, it's one of these sit standing desks, which um, I, I just uh, find it quite conducive. I think I, I was probably. Um, uh, I read somewhere that, that Hemingway always used to write standing up and, and rather pretentiously, I, I thought I should try this, see if it changes the way you, you write. And it sort of does, you, you, you sort of, you're more sort of physically engaged somehow in, in the activity of writing where rather than slumping in a chair, you're, you're sort of physically uh, engaged. Um, so the desk does that, and it's got a laptop on it, which is um, a MacBook Pro, which is connected to two screens, Which, because I sort of juggle writing books with being a journalist. So my day job is, is um, I mean, I'm a senior editor on The Times, uh, and have, for the past year I've been working remotely using um, uh, these sort of... Um, you, you can get a sort of uh, w- through Amazon workspaces you can get a sort of uh, a f- a second screen that's just like the office screen so I have two screens set up and, and alternate between them and in terms of notebooks I, I tend to I've always I've always kept um, had scraps of, of paper uh, from right, right from when I um, sort of first thought of paper becoming a writer. I was actually a, a, a farmer in an earlier incarnation. My father was a farmer, my grandfather before him. And I, I, I spent a couple of years working on the farm and would always be sort of daydreaming slightly. And, and sometimes that meant crashing things if I was happened to be daydreaming while driving a tractor with heavy machinery. Um, but I was always have these, I'd tear up little bits of, um, say if you were feeding cattle from these, uh feed from these paper bags i'd tear off little corners of these paper bags and scribble little notes on them uh just little phrases or whatever observations and and at that stage wasn't really sure why i was doing it it was just a sort of compulsion um and i've always sort of carried on doing that so my pockets are always full of torn up little bits of note paper, but not really uh anything as organized as a as a notebook
0: without a cow to feed
1: Without a cow to feed, yeah, exactly. Yeah, still look, going around the sort of fields in a, a disconsolate way looking for cows to feed.
0: Now we'll get to the uh, the routine and the more specifics of your day in just a sec. I'm just curious about the, the stand-up writing. Uh, do, how much do you find that affects the length of time that you can spend actually stood there typing away i would have thought that it might be a bit of a pain on the posture yeah it it does a bit it's it's sort of
1: an an hour up an hour down is sort of roughly the ratio um and sometimes when you get intense or you really have to concentrate then i do tend to sit down um or or it depends whether i'm sort of combining things i mean it's i i feel slightly sort of um fraudulent in, in in talking about this as a sort of because it's, it's two separate identities, really. So, the, for the writing novels, that, that is much more uh, trying to shut yourself off and trying to avoid, uh, you know, phone calls and, and distractions on the internet or whatever. I mean, I know some people have those time things on the internet, don't they, to stop you, to have a sort of concentrated workspace of several hours where you're not going to be tempted to check on something um but it, it, that can be a, a bit frustrating so uh you know not not being able to check on something as as you're writing it and we've now all got into the habit of um I remember ian mckeon talking about how it, it, the the obviously the the, the digital age has, has affected all professions but for writers you would actually when you're doing research spend a lot of time in in libraries and um and you just don't need to do that anymore because pretty much, you know, not, not all research is reliable on the internet, obviously. You know, Wikipedia is a bit of a wild west of anyone can contribute, but there's lots of other good, well-sourced uh, places out there. Uh, well, in fact, you get the, pretty much the whole of the British library uh, on on the internet and it's all a, a sort of few clicks away. So that completely changes the way you sort of access information and, and possibly speeds up the writing process. Um, but then there's, there's also the sort of business of, uh, of of getting out into the world. That, that I think writers used to find libraries useful in that respect, just the business of walking somewhere and having time to think uh, was conducive to writing.
0: You mentioned uh, just a second ago, the, the kind of difference between writing as a journalist and, and writing novels. In the initial stages when you began doing that, when you had been a journalist for a while and then started to, to to publish your own books, how long did it take you to figure out that perhaps the way you worked on both, although still writing, it would be slightly different?
1: Um, I think I I think I think got into, well, I, I always wanted to be a, a, an author. So uh, the journalism was sort of, uh, until you got there, it seemed like a... A, a next best thing uh, but as it turned out it, it is always there's always been in my case a strong cross fertilization with, with um uh, ideas uh, and just generally being sort of because journalism puts you out of the world and particularly the, the kind i was doing is a lot of feature writing you know it took me to all sorts of interesting places um for instance uh, uh, I was once sent an assignment to um, uh, Cairo to interview um, uh, the, the Egypt's most famous belly dancer, who had been was being um, accosted by uh, Islamic fundamentalists who who wanted, who were threatening to chop her into a thousand pieces, and she was sort of in hiding. So I sort of tracked her down and uh, sort of talked about her experience. But just spending time in unusual places and and. For, for writers you know that that always sort of um you know you're, you're pulling in your sort of environment and I, i've spent a lot of time traveling and then for feature writing places like venezuela and all across america and india and, and everywhere really and um and it's never wasted uh time and experience really it always sort of seems to um crop up somewhere or other in um in in fiction writing um but in terms of you, you asked about what what it's like when you was there a moment where you sort of change in the, in the two disciplines and I think the the what what journalism t- trains you to do is uh, not wait to be in the right mood to get to get writing you you sort of, you have to get on with it because you've got deadlines and uh, and usually a very unforgiving. Uh, uh, commissioning editor who's who's chomping at the bit so you you, you don't it, it teaches you um you know there, there's that saying uh, uh, amateurs uh, wait for inspirations whereas professionals get on with it and that's that's sort of the difference there's no sort of uh here's a good example max hastings the the, the famous sex editor of the of the Daily Telegraph. He's also a very successful historical uh, uh, biographer, uh, writer of history books, and he um, he always used to start his his working day at five in the morning, and would have sort of done a, a like a full day's writing before getting into the office uh, for a very demanding day job, which was editing the Daily Telegraph at about sort of eight thirty nine. So he'd done those really concentrated hours, and that's when he wrote all, all these incredibly substantial history books. Um, and it's 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 a good sort of just some people have that sort of energy, I think, and uh, and he's he's an inspirational figure in that respect. I mean, it doesn't doesn't suit everyone, but I certainly think um, treating mornings as being a sort of much more vital and uh, Energetic time of the day is is a useful lesson. It certainly applies in my case. I, I'm very much a morning writer. I, I sort of peter out as as the day goes on. When when I when I wake up and, and have a, a, a strong coffee, um, I'll, I'll sometimes go for um, a, a dog walk before I, I, I get writing. That sort of get, gets the blood pumping a bit, gets uh, oxygen uh, in, in the in the lungs, and um, and then you feel more sort of awake and um, t- time to crack on, and then I, I I just it feels like a very intense time and and a sort of creative time to, to start writing. So this is maybe six in the morning, and um, and then you know I I tend to I know some people I had an agent who who I remember was saying. Gave me the advice of um or the, the advice he sometimes gave to writers saying just start writing uh just plow on through to the to the finish basically. That, once you've got your ideas for um, how you want to um structure the the book, um just just keep going until you get, get the end and then do all the sort of the fine-tuning, uh, the polishing, at the, at the draft stages to, to do it that way. But that just never worked for me. I, I have to, um, particularly a, a sort of opening, a first chapter, uh, even an opening few paragraphs, I have to keep polishing and polishing and polishing until I, I'm really sort of happy with the result just because I then sort of believe in the believe in the book more i think when it's in a sort of sloppy half-written stage i i it sort of feels a bit sort of i lose confidence in it a bit and it's it, so I, I don't really sort of uh i'm not sure where it's going or whether it's going to work out properly whereas if i if i've polished and polished and polished and got this opening uh really sort of pitch perfect or as, or as perfect as i can at that stage then, I, then it, it sort of gives me a confidence to carry on with the rest because I believe that this is something worthwhile and is going to, uh, you know, go the course because it's a long, tangled process. Obviously, writing a novel, and it goes through lots of different versions, um, but that's uh, that's for me the the, the the crucial bit, and the actual sort of finding your way through the through the structure. Um, for me, the, the technique there is I, I sort of like to have, do this thing of, of doing one to 30 down an A4 page, just writing the numbers and then just sort of putting a sort of chapter idea it, alongside each one so you've got a, a natural beginning, middle and end and, and you can sort of see the, see a shape. It's like having a skeleton that you're then going to flesh out. Um, uh, but in terms of the, the 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 how the day pans out, um, I think if, yeah. Again, in my case, it's it's if I've taken a week off work, as in journalism work, to to really sort of nail a few chapters of a novel that I'm working for, I I tend to really because it's 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 eating into your sort of holiday time, as it were. I tend not to waste any time. It, that's the thing. I, I I I don't really sort of I can't really indulge, um, not sort of going off and sort of my mind wandering or whatever. So I'll really sort of put in sort of nine or ten solid hours of of writing just to make sure I'm not wasting that time. Because as as well, earlier books having a a young family or whatever, it was it was a big ask on of of my wife when I'd be having to. work on them at weekends and evenings and in my holidays. So, uh, it was sort of precious working time that couldn't be wasted.
0: Are you, are you mainly writing in those, the weeks that you take off as holiday or like, uh, the chapter you referenced earlier, are you pretty good at balancing work life, writing life in the morning with then work life for the times a bit later on?
1: Uh, no i don't think i have been particularly good at getting that balance it's funny i was i was looking at some family videos um, of uh, when when Mark, we've got i've got three sons uh, and when they were young sort of eight nine 10 eight sort of age uh, they'd be playing outside and i was i was going out filming them and and they were saying, "Come, come and play." And I was saying, oh, "I can't. I've got, I've got a deadline or something. I can't." And, and hearing myself say this on these old family videos, it mates, is like a stab in the heart. It's awful. I think, "Oh God, why didn't I just play with them?" It didn't. It didn't matter that much. Um, but, and I think it's there's a lot of because because of because of pe- most people's circumstances when they're trying to do a book, uh, there's very few people have the the, the sort of Um, there's very few people who can can sort of earn earn a living from it and just do it as a full-time thing they're they're combining it with other things usually Um, and so you've got to sort of uh, juggle really Uh, it's it's finding a a sort of uh, a balance and, and making the most of your spare time I suppose
0: when you start work as you say six ish in the morning, what makes a good writing day for you how how long will you stick around for how much do you want to get done um,
1: i I just keep going really uh, and and i i suppose although having having said that you you sort of it, it's slightly indulgent to to wait until you're in the mood uh it, it's, de- it's definitely the case that sometimes you will Things will flow better, and and it might even be just how whether you've had a good night's sleep and whether you're just feeling mentally alert and and have the right sort of energy levels. I think there's a there is a sort of energy side to to writing and a mood side to an extent. You can't always in, indulge it, and sometimes you just have to crack on and, and get something finished. But um, other times, you know, you do, you do notice it when you when you're in a a good space. Something I've I noticed about um, uh, column writing, actually, when when um, if if I had a had to write a, a, a column anew I, I, I was sort of um, I would have a certain a particular deadline, and I had to uh, go somewhere in a car. If there's a car journey, it might have been a school run or something, and that meant having um, not being able to take your hands off a steering wheel and make sort of notes. It it forced you to sort of think through the 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 structure uh, of the whole uh, column idea in your head. So when you got to the end of the journey and got hold of a laptop, uh, it sort of it was almost like downloading it fully formed and very quickly writing really quickly. So uh, sometimes it, you know it's it's like there was say of of um, essays, you know, student essays that you it's really worthwhile spending that. Ten minutes planning time, just because you you know what you want to write when you actually start writing, and and um, that applies to research as well. I think because what I tend to, in terms of novels, what I tend to do is historical novels. So I'll, I'll often um, really research um, uh, the historical period um, by just soaking up a lot of um, contemporaneous diaries and um letters uh, and, and history books so so by the time you're actually because all the while sort of mulling over ideas but by the time you actually come to it you, you, all the research uh, is sort of swirling around in your head and you can you can sort of channel it to an extent i think that's the that's the key to doing his historical stuff you're, you're sort of you're already in the atmosphere. And, and, and in that respect, sometimes I'll, when, I, when I've written pieces uh, uh, set in the sort of 20s, 30s, 40s, I've sometimes put on um, some music from that uh, period just to get me in the atmosphere a bit. You know, Pat, uh, Jack Buchanan or, or Glenn Miller or something. Not music I particularly like, but I'm, I find incredibly evocative. Uh, especially um, oddly enough, that Glenn Miller did some recordings of uh, with German singers, which is, I don't understand what they're saying necessarily, but I, I just find that it sort of gets you into this sort of different era and a different sort of space. It's like going through a, um, a, a crack in the time space continuum almost.
0: We've got more from Nigel in just a sec very quickly just popping up to remind you if you're loving the show if you're learning things that can help the way that you tell your stories, uh, I'd love you to send a little our way uh, by means of Patreon, you can do that patreon.com forward slash writers routine, just a tiny amount every month, it goes a really long way. Uh, it helps us carry on bringing you these chats every week as often as we can two a week now uh, with the bonus episode the random routine that we're bringing you pretty much every wednesday Uh, for that for that little bit of cash that you send our way you get bits of merch you get more bonus episodes there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show and you'll always get our eternal thanks seriously a tiny amount it goes so far for the show It means the world. Uh, We appreciate everything that we've got so far. And if you'd like to get involved, pledge what you can, patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Nigel Farndale talking about his brand new book, The Dictator's Muse. In this part, we'll talk about how he uses real life people in his fiction, uh, what he makes up and what he leaves in. Also, how being an award-winning interviewer has impacted the way that he tells stories. And we pick things up uh, with one last thing about his writing day. When he sits down, how much does he want to get done by the end?
1: I ignore the, the old word count thing. I, I think it's it's kind of meaningless um, in, in my circumstance. I, I think I'm much more. And, and, and part of this thing when I was talking about polishing before you sort of so you can start believing in, in what you're writing and feel more confident about it, and think, "Yeah, this has got the makings of something decent." Um, I, I think starting your day by rereading something polished really gets you in the right sort of place mentally to to push on, and and then you'll find the next the, the next section or the next chapter or whatever uh, just feels more f- finished, maybe.
0: Now, the new book, The Dictator's Muse, uh, just tell us about the very first moment that that idea came into your head. What was the, the light bulb that the idea presented itself as?
1: Um, well, yeah, in, in a way, it's an example of um, this. I was talking about the cross-fertilization with with, with journalism and, and writing books. And I was actually asked to do um, an interview with Lenny Riefenstahl in in 2000 when she was uh she she was 98 at the time but incredibly sort of with it at, at that stage she'd um she'd just recently been involved in a um a helicopter crash and just and you, might, you can't imagine in that age of 98 uh, and had got out of it and her first thoughts when she when she emerged from the from wreckage was whether she could reconstruct the moment and fil- get it on film. You know, She's quite a sort of feisty character. Um, anyway, th- I, I couldn't actually do that uh, uh, interview because it clashed with another one I was down to do, which uh, couldn't be more contrasting, really. It was with Ronnie Corbett. Um, so I went ahead and had to did, did that. And a, and a colleague of mine, um, David Jenkins, uh, went off to Germany to, to interview. They refreshed um, I, I always kind of regretted missing out on doing that one because I was very interested in her and, and I, I I just kept thinking about her work and about her um, extraordinary life. She was a very controversial, um, rather ambivalent figure who was, who was loved and loathed in equal measure and uh, extraordinarily she she was one of the few... In fact, really, the only um, female uh, figure of any sort of influence and power within the Third Reich. Um, she was Hitler's favorite filmmaker, especially after her um, the filming the documentary she made of the uh, nineteen thirty four Nuremberg Rally, and um, which was t- turned into the film um, Triumph of the World," um, and then also. Um, the, the her film on the Olympic Games, and I, I, I think possibly um, it was the frustration of m- missing out on this chance of having interviewed her that, that kept me coming back to her in terms of research, and then this this idea formed of, um, as I read her memoirs, uh, I realised that it, it was it was full of omissions and half truths and she she was sort of uh, she reinvented herself in, in her memoirs and they didn't correspond with other people's accounts of what was going on in the in the Third Reich in, in the 1930s. And I just got the feeling that she she was the sort of the ultimate unreliable narrator and this, this sort of started a sort of train of of, of, of thinking um, that what what if her novel, what if there was a novel to write about um, the real, uh, the the truth behind her extraordinary story. Um, And uh, I I, I sort of watched the films and I I read the memoirs and read as as many biographies of her as I could. And um, one of the things that that came out was that when she died in in, um, 2003, at the age of 101 she um, she left behind this incredible archive of 700 boxes full of letters diaries and, and lots of reels of film because she'd been making films all throughout her life and they still haven't really been looked at all this time afterwards and there is there are plans for an exhibition. Of them in in Germany but obviously she's still a a very controversial figure there and in fact the the triumph of the Wolf is still not allowed to be screened there for for obvious reasons and I just wondered what was on these reels of film and that that was a sort of that was the catalytic moment in a way that that sparked this this whole novel uh, imagining uh, a, a film historian being given access to this archive and find coming across this particular uh, clip of film, which was of uh, an athlete at the nineteen thirty six Berlin Olympics, which Marie Riefenstahl had um, had filmed, and and this sort of w- would would be the sort of way into her, her story, and, and it was the version of her life that she had been always wanting to tell. So that's that's where it it started really. In terms of y- using real life people in in fiction um, I mean it, it sounds like an odd thing to do doesn't it I, I, I appreciate this and I haven't really done it before um, although I have done I've written bi- biographies before and that sort of but they were sort of they were quite fictional biographies in a funny sort of way or, or at least r- biographies written in a, in a novelistic style so this is sort of the other way round um, and taking this uh this real person and sort of trying to um, imagine her world and and get inside her thoughts uh, was... It was was a very interesting um, proposition, really. Um, In terms of uh, uh, getting to the sort of... getting to the heart of the story and getting that sort of that list uh, of... Of chapters, um, to an extent, you can sort of once you've got to know someone. And I, she, she is a sort of fiction, even though she she really existed. She is a sort of fictional character in this book. And once I would sort of really decided on her, her nature and character, I found when I when I was putting her in situations, some were some events had sort of happened, and I, I was able to uh yeah it might might be a sort of paragraph of an an account of something that happened like when she was filming one of the nuremberg rallies, but then expanding that because you're you're sort of in her head and you're 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 going off in um uh, t- taking that as a sort of starting point and just just expanding the scene to fill it out um yeah that was the uh that's the challenge, and, and this this idea of, of using his real real people in, um, although it sounds it sounds a bit mad in a way, it, it sort of happens more often than you think. I mean, if you look at some look at some like Wolf Hall, it's it's a, a, one of the ultimate works of fiction, but it's it's about a real person, uh, and as is, uh, when look at the Crown. That, that's people. I think people found the Crown quite. Confusing because it it is a work of fiction based on historical events, but all the dialogue, all the situations, all the personalities, oh, are, are the from the imagination of Peter Morgan. Um, that that's the that's the sort of challenge I think of writing uh, historical novels and uh, dramas that you've got to. You got to you've got to sort of have the courage to <laughs> you have your convictions in a funny sort of way. I, I was thinking there of um, what was it? Oh, Alan Bennett. He he was uh, when he did the madness of King George. He was quite uh, feeling quite nervous about uh, putting words into the mouths of of these historical characters because he said, "Oh look, I, I know this these." situations happen, but we don't know what they said at the time, obviously, because there were no recordings or anything. And Nicholas Heitner, the, the director, just said, you, you've got to just treat it as fiction and, and just sort of get over yourself in a way. And it, that was quite a liberating thought. And once you once you do that, then, then it, it becomes a very satisfying uh, writing process because, you, because you're dealing with... Uh, specific moments in history, you can, as a writer, b- believe in the, the authenticity of the situation more, in a way, more than if they were all fictional characters. I mean, she she is mixing with uh, uh, some fictional characters, but she herself was a was a real character, as it were. Um, that's that's a conceit that um, I know this oh. Um, Robert Harris did that with with Munich, one of his recent novels, um, where he's taking a very big sort of historical moment, which is the the Munich peace talks, uh, and and interweaving these sort of, these two central characters were, were completely fictional, and and he sort of put them in that situation, and and once you do that, it gives it a sort of a texture. You, you almost get this sort of it's like weaving
0: in very similitude if that. Doesn't sound too pretentious. <laughs> uh, lastly, you are very well known for your interview prowess. Um, what has asking questions for a living pretty much? What is that? How has that impacted the way that you story tell?
1: Um, I think that the the way that I uh, have written interviews because uh, they're sort of you know the, these big sort of. Three thousand words sort of magazine interviews. Uh, I, I have sort of uh, found it has, it has helped to, um, to to sort of structure them as as in a novelistic way. I suppose it's it's going back to this beginning, middle, and end, and, and almost treating real people as as fictional characters and sort of and it's it's quite liberating. And the the, the trick in terms of interviewing, so. When you when you do a uh, write a, a big interview, you'll uh, do your research, and then you spend usually a day traveling. You might be flying to some uh, somewhere to get to the other end. Get your tape recorder out. You spend maybe a couple of hours talking to someone, and then you spend several more hours transcribing the tape. But you don't transcribe the whole tape. You're just sort of getting all the the good quotes, and you're re-entering the, the 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 moment of doing the interview and it gets you back in the room in a way but also by then you've sort of set up this distance between the actual interview so it might be several days later and some of this sort of stardust has has disappeared so you feel more emboldened to um not sort of suck up really and just be more uh, objective and and have some mischief with it sometimes um but in, in terms of the um dialogue it's actually been i find it very useful in terms of novel writing because when you when you really listen to the way people talk i mean you you'll you'll (laughs) have a a kindness would be to to edit out all my pauses and hesitations and repetitions but actually that's the way people speak you 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 do hesitate and repeat yourself and stammer and whatever and and use sort of ungrammatical sentences and and to actually really make dialogue seem authentic you've got to have some of that in there and, and trying to make it less stilted and more naturalistic and i think that uh, that's been something useful i've got from uh, interviewing and there has been cross-fertilization
0: And that is it for Nigel Farndale. Thanks so much to him for coming on. You can get a copy of his new book, The Dictator's Muse, using the link wherever you're listening. And there's one over at writersroutine.com as well. While you're there, get in touch with the show. Use the contact form. You can also hit us up on Twitter. We are at writerspod. And if you can, if you do have a spare sec, leave us a review on Apple and make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, Next week, we're chatting about another historical thriller, Uh, The author Alexis Landor is going to be on to tell us about her brand new book set in World War II. It's called Those Who Are Saved. She's on the show next week. In the meantime, if you can, uh, you can always pledge to support us at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Until then, I will see you next week with Alexis Landor on the show talking about those who are saved. Bye.